And so we're going to continue our series in uh, Mark's gospel. And we will begin with our scripture reading. And our scripture reading will be Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 30. 14 through 30. And I'll be reading from the, the ESV. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. But when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is the reading of God's word. We say, thanks be to God. And if you would pray with me. Father God, we come to, um, um, we come to your word um, as you recommend us to with, with fear and trembling and respect, knowing that you, you have spoken these words, that by your spirit you've inspired these authors to write down an account of what really took place and what really happened. And so we come with ears to hear and eyes to see God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate for us the, the meaning of this, this passage and this account. 
God, we know it's your word, but we just ask you to help us to see how this applies to us and what we can learn from it. We thank you that your word is honest. Even in very graphic and gory ways. We know that these have happened. They happen for a purpose. And they've been written down for our instruction. And so we ask you to speak to us through this passage this morning. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. We say amen. Well, we get to a very interesting little story here that we just read. In Mark's gospel, Mark is giving us a kind of a rapid fire account of the life of Jesus. He's introducing us to, to Jesus about who he is and what his identity is. And as we've gone through Mark's gospel, we've seen this kind of theme develop. People questioning, wondering who this guy Jesus is. Where does he get the power and the authority to do these mighty works? Where does he get the authority to speak these words that he has been speaking? And that's a refrain that we see, questioning, wondering, who, who is this man? And Mark has been kind of quick to go through it. Sometimes he gives a, a little bit of interesting details. And he goes and tells us the story about what Jesus has been doing. And it might be helpful for us to remember what had just happened prior to this passage. Last week, we looked at what happened at the beginning of Mark chapter 6. And that was uh, Jesus sending out the 12 apostles. Might remind you here what happened in verses 7 through 13. Jesus had... Um, Again, kind of a picture of the types of groups of people that were around. You had the crowds that were just kind of interested and fascinated about this guy, Jesus, and saw the works that he had done and were intrigued, quite kind of questioning. But then you had a, a, a smaller group, a group of disciples who we saw were learners of Jesus, who went to follow him and to follow his teaching. And that number uh, became a sizable number of disciples. And out of the midst of that number of disciples, we took Jesus took another group of disciples whom he calls the twelve. So their disciples are part of a larger group of disciples. Then he calls them the twelve and then he sends them out two by two to give them authority to go and do the very things that he himself had been doing. Notice in verses seven through thirteen. Sent them out two by two, gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there uh, until you depart. And any, any place does not receive you and they will not listen to you. Um, when you leave, shake off the dust of your feet, feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They went out proclaiming the kingdom of God that Jesus himself had begun to proclaim. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and, and healed them. So you have Jesus now expanding his ministry by sending out some of these disciples whom he calls the twelve. And then later we, we get the term that's applied to them, apostles, which is the sent out ones. Which becomes kind of an official title and office of the church 
later. And so this is what happens immediately before this account of Herod and John the Baptist. And what's interesting is that this account is happening during that mission. Well, how do we know? We, they're sent out in verses 7 through 13. And then notice verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So they're coming back with a report of this, this account. So the question today is, why is this here? Why is this story about Herod and John the Baptist in the midst of the sending out of the apostles to expand the work of Jesus and they're coming back with his report? Again, Mark's gospel has been all about Jesus on every single episode. This is the largest section in Mark's gospel where Jesus isn't the main character at all. So Mark is taking this story and putting this in here for us to know something, I believe, something about discipleship and the mission of disciple making. And so let's look at this story. Let's kind of unpack it a little and then we could come to some reflections about what this means. And this centers around two individuals. So let me kind of give you a little biography of these, these two individuals. The first one is, as it says in verse 14, King Herod. King Herod. Now, I want to be clear, this is not the Herod of Jesus's birth. Many of you know the Christmas stories about um, the Magi or Magi coming from the east at Jesus's birth. And they're bringing presents to welcome the, the Christ who had been born, the Messiah, the King of Israel who had been born. Right. You remember this story. And they show up in Jerusalem and they come to Herod's palace. Who Herod the Great was king over Israel at that point. That is Herod the Great. That is not this Herod. Okay? This Herod here in this story is actually the son, one of the sons, of Herod the Great. Let's remind ourselves about Herod the Great. He was a very, very powerful man. Very influential political figure. As a matter of fact, if you go to Israel today and you were to do a tour of Israel and you especially in Jerusalem, and then even in the outsides of Jerusalem, you could go to the sites of uh, many of his seven mansion castle fortresses that he built. It's amazing. He was a fundraiser extraordinaire, builder extraordinaire, very powerful, very influential political figure in, uh, in, in the Roman Empire and scheme. I want to point out, though, that he was not Jewish. He was actually Idumean by birth, uh, which is kind of another way of saying that the descendants, the people who had descended from Esau. You remember Jacob and Esau? Uh, he comes from that line and that tribe. So he's connected to Abraham in that sense, but he's not um, of Abraham uh, in the Jewish sense. He doesn't come from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He comes from Esau. And he was appointed, this is again Herod the Great, he was appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Empire. Which is why the little visit of the Magi to announce and to welcome 
the announcement or this birth of this king of the Jews, why Herod kind of panics a little bit going, wait a second, I didn't give birth to a son here really recently. What's going on? He leaves the room and he goes to the religious leaders and he's like, what town was it that the scriptures say that the the Messiah would come? And they go, oh, Bethlehem. And he goes, okay. So he kills all of the baby boys in Bethlehem. This is that's just one picture of the kind of ruthlessness of who this guy King Herod was. He ended up having many sons. He had 10 wives, many sons. And in his wills, we, you could go through and you could see the, the wills that he had written to how his kingdom would be kind of divided up and given out. And as a matter of fact, his kingdom was divided up. It was divided up into four regions. He wasn't overseeing. He oversaw all of the region of Israel, Jerusalem and Judah and uh, Judea in the south, uh, Samaria, uh, northern Israel, all around Galilee. He, he oversaw that whole region. And when he died, the kingdom was kind of broken up into kind of districts and was given to his sons. And the Herod in this story is Herod uh, Antipas. And he was given reign over one of those kingdoms in the north, the region of Galilee, the region where Jesus is conducting his ministry. So his technical term was tetrarch, which means ruler of fourth, ruler of a fourth of it. But he fashioned himself a king like his dad. So that's why Mark includes King Herod here. In the other Gospels, you hear him referred to as Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas the Tetrarch. So technically, he wasn't a king like his father, but he was as evil and vicious as his father, Herod the Great. So that's who the Herod is in this story. Who's the other key figure in this story? Well, we met him before. The other key figure here is John the Baptist. We learned early on in this series about John the Baptist and I invite you to turn back to, to Mark chapter 1 to remind ourselves a little bit about John the Baptist. Mark began his gospel by saying this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he says, and by the way, this whole gospel about Jesus, the Son of God, is written in the scriptures. It's written in Isaiah the prophet. And there's a quote here. It's actually a, a cite from Isaiah and also a, a, a little bit of a, an allusion here to some words from Malachi, where it says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And then Mark tells us who this messenger that Isaiah spoke of hundreds of years before is actually John the Baptist. Verse four, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem are going out to him being baptized by him, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel, camel hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier, mightier than I, the straps of whose hand, sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
John here is Jesus's cousin. We know that from Luke's gospel. Jesus's earthly birth mother, Mary and Elizabeth, John's mother, were cousins. Jesus and John were born roughly the same time. I think John's a little older. And as we saw in this citation from Isaiah and from Malachi, he is the forerunner of the Messiah. So in this sense, he's kind of like the last Old Testament prophet. He kind of reminds us a little bit of one of the key Old Testament prophets, Elijah, which is why he kind of gets alluded to um, here by the advisors to Herod, right? So he's, in this way, he's kind of the last Old Testament prophet. And then in, in, in another way, he's kind of like the first disciple. He really is the link between Old Testament and New Testament. And so this account, we have this clash of king and prophet, king and prophet. And it's right here in the um, right on the heels of the mission of Jesus and the expansion of Jesus's ministry to the disciples through their disciple making ministry that we have this story. So King Herod, verse 14, heard of it. And the it here is probably in reference to what has just happened. That's the sending out of the 12 and the expansion of Jesus ministry, which was pointing to Jesus ministry. And as he goes on to say, he's, he's hearing about Jesus and his influence and the growth of his ministry. He heard of it, this expansion of the ministry for Jesus name had become known. And some had said here, you kind of this, uh, you have Herod kind of going and inquiring to people, who, who is this? What's going on here in my little kingdom? Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So that's what some people were saying. This guy, Jesus, is actually John the Baptist come back to life again. But verse 15, there's some other opinions. The other said he is Elijah. See, they kind of the Old Testament prophet, Elijah, who's come back from the dead. And others said he is a prophet like one of those prophets of old. So he's not the resurrected Elijah. Uh, he's not the, the resurrected John the Baptist. He's, he's just a prophet from old. So those were the options given to him. And Herod selects one of those options. He selects the first one, verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So in Herod's mind, he's thinking, this guy, Jesus, is John the Baptist raised. And now it's raising, kind of raising a whole bunch of questions here. He says, who am I beheaded? Now, the rest of this account is now telling us a little bit of a backstory. So this, uh, this, this uh, account about Herod wondering about and wondering about this guy, Jesus, comes in the midst of the expansion of Jesus' ministry while they're on mission to make disciples, we hear this story. And now Mark needs to give us a little bit of backstory about what has happened here. And so the rest of this is uh, kind of the backstory to this concern that Herod has. You know, he started very, very curious about Jesus. And now he's really concerned because he thinks that this guy is John the Baptist raised. And that creates a big problem for him because, as it says, he goes, I beheaded John. Now Mark gives us the details and fleshes that out. Here's the backstory. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had, been, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias 
And here is the intrigue and scandal kind of revealing itself. His brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. How many of you like kind of miniseries or TV shows like of, you know, like historical pieces? Um, maybe like, you know, 16th century England with King Henry and all of his wives and the political intrigue that happened there. And you're like, ooh, that's fascinating. That's history. Uh, that's no different than what was like in the first century with Herod and his family. And so you hear you kind of all kinds of political intrigue and backstabbing. And, and here you have this interesting case where Herod actually takes his wife, takes as his wife, the wife of his brother, Philip. And her name is Herodias. And so Herod has John arrested because, as it says in verse 18, he had been preaching against what he had done. John had been preaching against what Herod was doing. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So here's John looking at this very powerful, influential person, Herod, and sees what he is doing in his private life, so to speak, and is calling it out as sin. as something that's against the law of God. It's actually right from Leviticus 18 and, and 20. I believe it's Leviticus 18, 16. Where Leviticus 18, 16. Hold on one second here. Find that for you. Leviticus 18, 16, it says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. Again, in chapter 20, verse 21, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness and they shall be childless, it says. So John here is calling out Herod for breaking the law of God. He's actually calling him to repent of his sin. And this brings um, Herodias some, some stress and some concern. You have, you shall, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Luke tell, or Mark tells us who his brother's wife is. Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Let you a little bit know about the, this conflict and the turmoil within Herod himself. He's willing to listen to a prophet, but he kind of dismisses the prophet. He believes that he's a holy man, but he's also very frustrated with what he has to say about his lifestyle. But Herodias is offended and holds a grudge. Which, by the way, this brings us to kind of an interesting little point of reflection here. I think the witness of John gives us a, a great reminder that there is no... Um, just preach the gospel and avoid politics kind of thing. 
Because preaching the gospel can't help but be political. The gospel is for all persons. No one is exempt from hearing the the good news. And you have to hear the bad news before you can get the good news. The bad news is that all of us have all gone astray. We have all rejected God's rule over our life. We've each sought to become our own ruler over our life and to control our world as we see fit, apart from God's instructions on how it should be run, and thereby putting us at enemies with God, and therefore deserving of God's judgment. That's bad news. You have to embrace the bad news to get the good news. The good news being that God, even though he is rightfully judging us for our rebellion against him, has chosen in his mercy to save all who would repent and turn back to him. That he would send his son Jesus to come and to suffer and die on a cross, paying the penalty of the judgment of the death that we would deserve. And that all who through Christ would repent and turn their faith in Christ are now reconciled with God. You have to get you have to know the bad news before you could get to the good news. And John is the preacher of this this gospel. He's the preacher of the law. He's reminding them of the bad news. And friends, I think that that's helpful for us to to remember, especially as this is situated right in this middle of this sending out of the disciples, the 12, the apostles, to go and expand this ministry to make disciples of other nations and calling people to repent. And if they reject you, knock the dust off your sandals as a testimony to them, not in anger or frustration, just as a way of saying, "I've, I've shared with you the message that God has given. You are now accountable for it. Situated right in the middle of that, as messengers of the gospel, we need to speak against the powerful and those who abuse their power and those who would break God's law. So the call to repent goes to all, including the influencers and the powerful, too. And this gospel, this gospel that I laid out for you here, the gospel that centers around this person, Jesus and the cross, it is in a way at its root offensive. Why? Because it assaults our pride. It calls us out for our sin and calls us to do the very hard thing of acknowledging Our sin. But it does so that it would bring us the good news of salvation. And those who are humble and receive this, receive this amazing, tremendous gift, this eternal blessing of salvation with God forever. 
to have our humanity to restored to us and to become in turn into the image of the perfect man, Jesus. But to the prideful, it becomes a condemnation. Herodias is offended by this gospel. She's offended by this call to repent and she can't ignore it. And that's why she has this grudge in verse 19. Now Mark explains in detail what happened. Verses uh, 21 through 29. And let me, allow me to read it again. But an opportunity came when Herod... Now, remind ourselves here, there's kind of a little bit of a conflict. Herod kind of respects John. He doesn't want to harm John, even if he doesn't fully believe and want to uh, admit what John is having to say. He still respects him. But then you have Herodias here who's offended by John's message. And they're kind of at odds here. And Herodias wins out. Verses 21. And an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, and he's probably in a, a little bit of a, a drunken um, partying mode here. Makes this kind of rash vow and commitment. Ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And then he vowed to her. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out, kind of the image, she left the room, went to go see her mother. What should I ask? And Herodias says, the head of John the Baptist. So the girl runs back in with haste to the king and asks, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king Herod was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to his mother. Tragic end here of the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. Kind of reminds us a little bit about another prophet versus king and queen scenario who were, was offended by the words of God. Maybe you might know the story of Elijah and his interactions with um, Ahab and Jezebel. And Jezebel also wanting Elijah's head on a platter, so to speak. Kind of has echoes of this tragic end for the prophets as it typically happens for Old Testament prophets. And the last little measure of dignity comes kind of here at the end of the story. And when his disciples, that is John's disciples, came, uh, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And it's right on the heels of that we have verse 30. And the apostles returned. Sends them out. Herod and John the Baptist and the apostles return. So back to Kind of our original question. Why is this here? Jesus is not prominent in this episode. Even the entire gospel is about Jesus. Why is it? What's the point of this sandwiching of this account in the middle of this mission? I think that this placement of this story here forces us 
to consider John's death, what John's death means for discipleship and mission. And I think it illustrates the the true nature of discipleship and the cost of discipleship. This nature and cost of discipleship actually from this point uh, through the next couple of chapters becomes a major theme in Mark's. And in a couple of chapters, Jesus will teach us these words and invite you to turn to the right a little bit to Mark chapter 8, where Jesus kind of culminates with these words. Jesus teaches us, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, following me as, as a disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. But whoever... Uh, but whoever loses life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man bring, give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Well, whoever saves their life will lose their soul. But whoever gives up their life for the gospel will save their soul. John really becomes kind of a model for discipleship here and a model for the the 12 disciples who almost all will face the same fate that John does. John gives up his life to preach repentance to the powerful. John gives up his life to preach repentance to the powerful. The disciples on this little excursion, on this training trip, have to preach. Preach the same message. And after Jesus dies and is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven and he commissions them by the spirit to go out and preach the gospel, they do so and they do so at risk of their lives, just like John did. So John's a forerunner in in multiple ways here. He becomes a model disciple for us. John denied himself and took up his cross and followed Jesus. He lost his life for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake, and he will find that he saved it. John forfeited the world to gain salvation for his soul. Herod, on the other hand, and quite in contrast, he loses his soul by caving to the pressure of others. He loses his soul in his pride. He loses his soul in his cowardice. And whoever would attempt to save his life will lose it. Herod, as a descendant of Herod the Great, in a very real way, had gained the world. And yet, he forfeited his own soul. 
Herod heard about Jesus here and he heard about the ministry of the disciples. He inquired thinking maybe that John the Baptist was raised and he discovers that this is this is Jesus. Who is this guy? We end up uh, seeing Herod meet Jesus uh, later. Look at with me to Mark, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 23. This Herod who's interested in this guy, Jesus, who he hears about, does end up meeting him, coming to meet him face to face. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 6, verses 6 through 12. Again, this is the, the night, the day, actually, that Jesus was arrested and crucified. Verse 6, it says, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, meaning the man here being Jesus. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jur- jurisdiction, okay, that's this same Herod, Herod Antipas. He said to, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. He'd been wanting to see Jesus for a couple of years now. He had long desired to see Jesus. Why? To acknowledge him as king. To recognize him as savior. To fall at his feet in repentance. Sadly, no. He had longed to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Wanted Jesus to do some of his miraculous tricks. So he, that is Herod, questioned him at some length, but he, this Jesus, made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Herod does finally get to meet Jesus. And instead of falling at his feet, he stands over him in judgment. Instead of treating him with respect... He holds him in contempt. Instead of reverencing him as Messiah, he mocks him. One day, too, we will have to come face to face with Jesus. Really, it's kind of a fork in the road here, right? It's a, you could take the route of, of John, who gave up his life to save his soul, or you could do the route of Herod, who chose otherwise one day we will have to come face to face and i hope and pray that unlike herod who stood in judgment over jesus we will kneel before jesus the judge but also our savior so why is this here i think this is here to give us the choice that all of us have to face in discipleship we're going to follow the route of herod Interesting to know a little bit about this guy, Jesus. Maybe he was John the Baptist raised to life again. Maybe he could come and do some some miracles for me and some tricks. But in the end, not believing, not repenting, not confessing, not kneeling. Or we could take the route of John. 
and recognize that as, as a servant of Jesus, we face a very difficult life on our mission to follow Jesus and making disciples of others. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. As we're sent out on mission to make disciples, let's lose our life for Christ's sake and the gospel's sake. Amen? Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And even these very difficult and, and grotesque and uh, gory passages that are in your scriptures uh, do teach us. Even in this story that doesn't directly talk about Jesus, our Savior, we learn about John, his forerunner and disciple. And in that way, the model and example for us as disciples. God, as we go about on the mission that you've given us to do, and that's to, to make disciples, to announce the good news in all its fullness, the wonderful truth of what Christ, your son, has done, but also the bad news of the acknowledgement of the sad and sinful state that we are in. God, we pray that as we go out bearing that message, that we will be faithful and follow the example of Jesus' forerunner, John. Help us, God, to be able to speak boldly and courageously the truth of your word to whomever needs to hear it. Help us not to back down in cowardice to the face of those people who are powerful or influential. Help us to speak the truth boldly and honestly. We pray that you would do that in and through us. Through the Holy Spirit you've placed in us. And for the glory of your son Jesus. In whose name we pray. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Friends of you stand for closing benediction. Uh, reminder that the um, the petitions for the dismemberment ban to see Joe or Missy for those. And then also a reminder that the uh, offering box is uh, out on the information table or should be. And uh, let me send you away with this benediction. Brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.